0: Asada Shakur said it best, no one is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. Nobody is going to teach you your true history, teach you your true heroes, if they know that knowledge will help set you free. I'm Sid from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. Educated Black people flourishing in the world has always been met with opposition. You can particularly find it in every era of America's past, those overt and covert methods used to suppress Black education. So it's no surprise that white supremacy continues to deter our access to knowledge, erasing, rewriting, or condemning histories and ideas that challenge these racist systems. In the past few months, we've seen states ban critical race theory in classrooms and uphold the legacy of stonewalling Black education. Prioritizing and investing in education at every conceivable opportunity is in the best interest of our people. And we'll talk about that today with Dr. Ivory Tolson. A scholar, activist, and servant leader, Dr. Tolson is the National Director of Education, Innovation, and Research for the NAACP. He also serves as the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Negro Education and is a professor of counseling psychology at Howard University, where he's been for 16 years. But before Jay sits down for a great interview with Dr. Tolson, we'll hear a story about the history that's led us to this point. A 15-year-old boy holds his breath. Hidden beneath the dark of night, he sprints between trees, a single candle burning in the window of a plantation church. As he quietly opens the back door, he sees his mother. They're lucky to be together. His father had been sold years before to another plantation. When the boy enters, a handful of eyes dart to the door, but the tension dissipates when they see it's him. After a full day of backbreaking, unpaid labor, these enslaved men and women gather together so they might do the illegal, so they might learn how to read. For generations, education for black people, and not just the enslaved, was outlawed. Education made one unfit to be a slave, in Frederick Douglass's words. Enslavers knew it too. Once slavery was legally ended, education was, for many black people, the number one priority. But white supremacy didn't make it easy. From the burning of black school buildings to segregation. From funding disparities to busing and vouchers and school choice. From the private and charter schools that proliferate today to the enslaved being insultingly classified as immigrants and workers. We've always had to fight for the right to education. Some of our communities are embracing freedom schools, homeschooling, or unschooling. Others are putting in the hours of extra work on evenings and weekends to augment or completely replace the lessons being taught in American public schools. White supremacy can no longer burn down our schools or outlaw Black literacy, but it can criminalize our youth via the school-to-prison pipeline and ban books that feature anti-racist messages. And even more insidiously, white supremacy can miseducate our youth through the subtle language choices in widely used textbooks. So, how do we as Black people understand this? And how do we resist?
1: So, Ivory, what does Black liberation look like to you?
2: Black liberation to me is Black people having the authority and the autonomy to create their own reality and their future. It means us being able to be our authentic selves in education and in work and in life, be able to make decisions that's best for us in our community and not have to acquiesce to systems that were not designed to benefit us.
1: When it comes to creating our own reality, how can we do that when it comes to education?
2: Yeah, so education is the most important thing for us because when we know about ourselves and know about our history, understand our culture and have have an education that that reaffirms us and who we are and our values, then we can get to that liberation that you you talked about. Because you know liberation, of course, it, it starts in the mind. You can be physically free, but as long as your mind is captive, then you'll never be able to to live free. Uh, so education, when it's authentic and it affirms who we are, then it's a, a key to liberation. Just to give you know, one example, so there's a, a, a white teacher who told me that she taught at a predominantly black school and she had a difficult time talking about slavery because in her words it was such a painful period. Black children get sad when she taught about slavery and so i asked her i said well how how do you teach about slavery and she seemed kind of miffed by that question as though there was only one way to 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 teach about it and i i asked her i said how do you describe prisoners of war to your students you know when, when we look at uh the prisoners of war that we celebrate that that um that escape from that and come back home is that something that we think they should be embarrassed by And, you know, she conceded that they didn't. And so then I went on to talk about, you know, how to not teach about slaves, but teach about Black people during the time of slavery, because 300,000 of us were free. And leading up to the Civil War, hundreds of us were escaping slavery every single month. And we were going to abolitionist movements. We were... Uh, Working with John Brown when he attacked Harper's Ferry, Uh, we were setting up maroon colonies. Uh, We were escaping to to Mexico and to Canada. Um, And we were radicalizing the abolitionist movement. Uh, So it wasn't this thing where we were just captive and waiting for the Confederate and the, the, the Union to hash it out. We made slavery untenable. I have two great-great-great-grandfathers who were Civil War veterans. They were were born into slavery, and both of them escaped from that reality and joined the Union Army. That's what we're not being taught about ourselves. And so when when you have teachers like that who are teaching Black children, but don't know how to teach their history in a way that affirms them, uh, invigorates them, empowers them, um, then we're going to have a lot of children who don't understand their own value. So where does
1: that come from, that approach to teaching Black students a black about both slavery and other things that directly involve Black history? Are they told to teach it a certain way, or are they bringing certain biases to it, or is it coming from elsewhere?
2: Yeah, they're bringing biases, and they're also bringing a lack of knowledge. They're also bringing one perspective of history and a a perspective that was intentionally designed uh, to make certain people feel good about their past. Uh, And so, you know, when we we read things like, you know, Columbus discovered America, you know, we we know that Columbus didn't discover America. Uh, We know that he was lost and he he never never reached what we consider the mainland. Uh, And he also committed some horrible atrocities. Uh, to the people in what we know now as, as uh, Dominican Republic and, and Haiti, that island. Um, but because they wanted to create, when I say they, uh, I mean, you know, the architects of, of the educational system, because they wanted to create a narrative that the explorers that came from Europe to the, to the Western hemisphere, because they wanted to create a narrative that they were great and that they did not have laws, they distorted history. And it's interesting, in um, some of these anti-critical race theory laws, like the one in Florida, in that law, they said that it's against the law to distort history, In that same one. So essentially, they made it illegal to teach about Columbus the way that we typically teach Columbus, but because they're so ignorant to the truth, they don't see the contradiction of that. They don't see that by them saying that it's against the law to distort history, they're basically saying that you should not teach history the same way that we've been teaching it for over a century.
1: So you touched on critical race theory, and I know that for a lot of folks, this concept was foreign or brand new up until the past couple of months. So help us understand what it is, what the conversation was about and how that connects to um, the example you just gave.
2: Yeah, so critical race theory was formulated around 40 years ago uh, out, of, out of legal uh, doctrine, legal scholars. And what they were endeavoring to do is to try to understand why you can have racism embedded in systems, even when the players are not overtly racist. So, you know, how can you have a black judge and black prosecutors, black lawyers, black correctional officers? Uh, how 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 can you diversify a system and have people who are saying, you know, I'm not racist, but yet you still have black teenagers getting jail time for things that white teenagers don't even get arrested for. So you have all of these things as baked into the system. And so what critical race theory aims to do is to explain why. And they uh, trace the, the, the history of how certain things are structured, including the criminal justice system and education, and how the legacy of white supremacy in the United States has, has created systems that don't function well for for black people. And that's kind of understated. Critical race theory has been used to understand a lot of school districts uh, with that same phenomenon where you you can diversify the teaching staff. uh, you You can create an environment where it's not popular or appropriate to be overtly racist. But you can still have outcomes that don't serve black children well and so critical race theory was was used to examine that now recently there's been a push to create programs that we call diversity equity inclusion sometimes you add belonging and justice to it so over the last 20 years these programs have become more popular and these are programs that don't have much to do with critical race theory But it's programs that that advocate for things like all teachers need to go through cultural diversity training. We need to examine the curriculum. Look at things like disproportionality and uh, placement in special education and uh, suspensions, uh, placement in gifted and talented programs. So all things that you know seem like things that we should be doing. Again, not much to do with critical race theory. So recently, and especially after. Uh, George Floyd. There was an acceleration of diversity initiatives, and you had school districts who hadn't really thought that much about race, saying that you know we need to we need to do more, and we need to do more diversity training. And there were people who did not like that, and so there was a concerted effort among people who were politically oriented to take this theory, this decades-old theory and recast it as something that is uh, dangerous and in their words Marxist and their argument was that these diversity equity and inclusion initiatives uh, were operating under the guise of this thing that is threatening uh, something that is you know kind of reverse racist which is a very absurd notion but they weren't comfortable saying They didn't like diversity initiatives that made them sound racist. So what they had to do is find a proxy for diversity initiatives that people didn't understand well. They redefined that proxy, which is critical race theory, and said, you know, this is what we really have in schools. critical race theory is not the diversity initiatives that you may have agreed with initially.
1: That's helpful. What were some of the ways that, you know, these initiatives were practiced?
2: What they typically look like is, you might hire a chief diversity officer uh, and give that person uh, some authority to evaluate systems uh, and uh, um, put this person in a position to talk to the superintendent and advise them on different policies. Um, uh, it, It may come in the form of mandatory trainings for teachers on cultural diversity. It could also come in the form of looking at the diversity of the teacher workforce and of the principals and making sure that it's reflective of the, the diversity and the, the student population.
1: And I think that connects to the anecdote you shared earlier around you know how this individual teacher had difficulty teaching slavery because of some of that bias. Is there currently evidence that these types of trainings are effective in what they're intending to do?
2: There's a lot of research that's that's done on it. Uh, The research tends to look at very small samples, but the teacher workforce is about 7 million strong. It's uh, the largest uh, professional unit, our largest profession in the United States. So in terms of looking at the students and looking at students that have been exposed to black history, and looking at their outcomes there's strong evidence that if a student is exposed to black history uh, they will have good outcomes in life what we don't have as much evidence on is whether or not you can train all of the teachers on teaching black history and have that have a meaningful impact on the system i don't think it's ever been done most of the time When they teach teachers about cultural diversity, these are optional trainings. I'll have a district that will bring me in to talk to their teachers and the demographics of their teacher workforce may be 80% white, but in the training that I'm doing, it's about 40% white. And so, and and these are, you know, the white people who have self-selected, they saw the topic and they wanted to learn more about it. But right now, the the system is structured such that if a teacher wanted to avoid these topics and not learn about it, they could.
1: And it seems that this focus on individual teachers may be part of it, right? It's something that is being tried and it seems to be well-meaning intentions. But I would think that there's also something deeper at a systemic level that could be focused on as well, right? The teachers are getting their... Bias from somewhere they're learning this somewhere. So, you know what's going on at a a systems level.
2: Things in the system that works against our best efforts, I think, is uh, this focus on standardized tests. And you know, so so when we're telling teachers that the most important thing is for students to be able to pass these tests that may look at math skills are their reading ability and there's these really discrete things and so the teachers become laser focused on that and then you also create a situation where um, teachers who have students who perform well on tests they get greater rewards and you may have a, another teacher there, their students may not be performing as well on the standardized test, but this is a teacher that is motivating students, that are, that's teaching the, the, the students the value of who they are. And so they, the, the, the students are giving all of these benefits that can't be measured by a standardized test, but the evaluation process, uh, the way that we currently determine who's a good teacher versus a bad teacher um, doesn't evaluate the things that are most important to um, the affirmation of Black people. Uh, so that's a systemic issue that, um, that's getting in the way.
1: So earlier you mentioned that kids exposed to Black history have good outcomes or better outcomes in life. What does that mean? What does that look like and why is it?
2: Yeah, some of the scholars, um, like Asa Hilliard, the, the late Asa Hilliard, who did a lot of research looking at children and their experiences and the the, the, the impact uh, of a positive education on children, uh, have found that when, when children are taught to love themselves and to love their culture and their people and taught about themselves, uh, that they'll have stronger outcomes in terms of uh, you increase the graduation rates, you increase um, matriculation into uh, college, um, and they go on to have more positive outcomes in life. Also, the work of, of Carol Lee, she worked with Hakima Aboudi in Chicago. Uh, Hakima Aboudi is the one who, who um, founded Third World Press, um, and they set up Afrocentric charter schools. Uh, and and Carol Lee, coming from scholarship, she was able to uh, record uh, the data and and um, and publish the information and, and show strong outcomes of the students who who went through their curriculum. There's strong anecdotal evidence out there that when a a student uh, has exposure to Black history, Black culture, uh, and is affirmed through education. Uh, that that there's better outcomes. And and, and even when, when we look at students in general and their sense of belonging, they looked at this whole notion of belonging, the, the extent to which a student belongs in the environment or feel feel connected to their school. And they found that when a student feels connected to the school, they have better outcomes. Well, we can extrapolate that to say that um, the system as it exists right now is not set up for Black students to feel like they belong because they're not learning about themselves. Uh, So if we want to increase belonging among Black students, then we have to to teach them about themselves. And and it's really about teaching the truth. You know, it's not about uh, distorting it or or cherry picking. Um, Black people and our contributions have been omitted from history. Uh, There's a good book called Lies My Teacher Told Me, uh, and they point to all of the ways in which not just black people, but uh, the indigenous population. um, uh, All of our our history has been taken out and has been framed in such a way uh, that we look like passive pedestrians of of American history, not material to American history.
1: Yeah, and that's not by accident, is it?
2: No, no, it's not not by accident. And, you know, going back to the example of Christopher Columbus, but you know the history is replete with those kinds of examples you know like if we look at at andrew jackson um you know we are taught that we have to revere american presidents no matter um, what their past is and and whether or not they've done things that's harmful to to us Um, andrew jackson uh before he became president uh he presided over a massacre of black people in Florida, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a cache of weapons that was taken over by black people who escaped from slavery in Florida. If you, if you uh, Google Negro Fort, uh, you can see the Wikipedia page on the Negro Fort. It was presided over by uh, someone named General Garson. Uh, 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 that's the black man who was over that fort. And this was when Florida was an independent Spanish colony, a fragile Spanish colony, and Andrew Jackson led a reconnaissance mission uh, to investigate this fort uh, and uh, uh, provoke the fort, and ended up killing hundreds of people, um, black people who were colonizing in a independent independent colony, uh, and so, but but we're taught to revere someone who. Uh, is instrumental uh, to holding black people back. And then we're not taught about General Garson, uh, who was someone who looks like us, who was fighting in order to you know, create the kind of liberation that we started our conversation with. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not by accident. Uh, it is by design uh, that certain people who have problematic past are amplified and elevated uh, in our history. And other people who would mean more to us, uh, uh, their role is diminished, are are, uh, taken away altogether. The system, from
1: what I understand, this education system is still controlled by white folks. We're still in a white supremacist system. How reasonable is it to expect these certain types of changes to be implemented to actually benefit students, all students, in the way that, you know, the truth actually can.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's not just reasonable. Uh, I would say that it's, um, it's, it's absolutely necessary for Black people to have certain expectations out of the schools. Um, our, our children are there. And, you know, I, I think that public school and the public school system is very important to black people and it will remain important to black people because we need we need the government to pay for our education uh that's a, uh i think that education is a right um but we also you know with that right uh we have a responsibility to hold people accountable for what they're they're teaching our students uh so you know the the diversity initiatives that i talked about, Um, You know, even if they don't lead to radical, immediate change, I think it's a long-term process and we have to continue to push, we have to continue to evaluate and hold people accountable for giving our children the education that they deserve. So for
1: parents listening now or guardians, folks who have, you know, kids uh, that are, part of the system. What are some of the, the top ways folks can hold um, the system accountable?
2: Well, you need to, to know your children's teachers, you know, open up that line of communication with them uh, and, you know, let them know that you want, you know, you're, you're interested and invested in your students getting the best education that they could possibly have. And you are, are raising a Black child, and you want that child' that a child to be affirmed in their blackness, and I, I think that it's um it's okay to 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 just tell tell schools that straight out. Um, I have two children in school. I have a a daughter who's in her first year of high school right now. Uh, but in eighth grade, um, she she took eighth grade algebra, um, but she was denied admission to the class initially. Uh, And this is after she went through accelerated classes in sixth and seventh grade, uh, performed well in those classes, uh, and took a course during the summer. Uh, She was denied access to it. I was able to go to, you know, after a little back and forth with the school, I was able to go to the civil rights data collection, which is something that Anybody can go to, you can Google civil rights data collection, go to the website. Um, If your child goes to a public school, you can put in that public school location and data will come up about how that school is performing on a variety of metrics. I was able to find out that my child's school, which is only 10% white, had an algebra eighth grade class that was 50% white. And when I took 10% of the total number of students in the school and divided that by three to estimate about how many uh, white students were likely to be in the eighth grade, uh, it turned out that at that school, just about all the white students at the school were taking um, algebra in the eighth grade. Uh, Yet they're denying this class to a qualified black, black student. And so I, I presented that information to the school and, you know, asked them to explain that. And, you know, so they, you know, kind of gave a, a, a weak response, uh, but, you know, they decided to give my daughter another assessment. She passed that assessment and they let her in the class. Um, but, you know, these are the types of things that we have to go through in order to, to fight against these systems.
1: Was the administration mostly white or black at this school?
2: The principal was white. Uh, the assistant principal uh, that I was directly communicating with was black. Um, the The white principal did reach out to me as, after that conversation uh, and said that they need to do better and, and said that the school had a task force. Um, but but my wife served on the committee and one of the meetings that I, I, I um, listened to via Zoom, uh, that same teacher uh, who, who was actually making the decisions on uh, who to come into the class, She's a, she was actually on the committee. Um, and I mean, the irony is that she was talking like she was a social justice warrior at the meeting, but at the same time, gave a, shared a story about another black girl who she said didn't qualify for her class And that black girl told this teacher that she was an Oreo, that she was black on the outside and white on the inside to try to talk that teacher into getting her in this algebra class. Um, I mean, and that's heartbreaking that we have black children out there that feel like they have to uh, act like they're white in order to get into the class that they want. That little girl's fighting the best way she knows how and to her that's posturing as someone who belongs in the class because she's white on the inside. And the same teacher who denied the girl that, that, that right to get in the class and denied my daughter is telling this story as if it's so you know, heartbreaking to her. But at the end of the story, she still didn't let the girl in the class. Only thing she did was convince the girl uh, that the standard eighth grade class wouldn't be so bad. And, and that's what, you know, that's where she came, that's where she arrived at the end. Um, so, so yeah, we got, we have a fight.
1: I appreciate you sharing that. And uh, unfortunately I believe that that is probably common across the, the country. So, and I think that also gets to that point you made about um, the need for positive affirmation of blackness and black identity in these environments. Are there things that can be done in, say, private Afrocentric schools that can't be done in public schools? Are there things that, you know, public school teachers or administrators can implement in the public school system so, you know, more black kids can benefit from this type of affirmation?
2: I mean, the reality is that these schools are bending at the will of parents who feel more empowered and feel like they have the agency to tell the, ch- tell the, the, the school what to do for their kids, and yeah, I remember talking to another white teacher who, you know, enjoyed talking about diversity, and she she was teaching at a predominantly black school. Had a lot of leadership in in her teachers' union, and she said that yeah, she's always liked to teach at at schools that were predominantly black, uh, and she hated teaching at these predominantly white suburban schools. And I asked her, I asked her why, and she said, because at the, at the suburban schools, every parent thinks their child is gifted. And, and that kind of, you know, it struck a chord with me. It, it, it hurt me in a way because, you know, I want every black parent to think that their child is gifted, you know? And... and you know, by, by her coming to predominantly black schools to get away from the type of parents that put pressure on them, that force them to say that their child is gifted, even when they're clearly not, not. And so now she's going to these predominantly black schools where parents are accepting what the school was telling them about their child. Uh, I wish every black parent would go and say, you know, my child is gifted. Prove me wrong. And, and uh, you know, that's that's where we have to get. I mean, that's and, and that's what we're competing against, too. Right. I mean, if all the white parents are going in saying that their child is gifted and they're forcing the, 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 the school to prove them wrong. If we're not fighting the same way, then we are going to put our, our kids at, at somewhat of a disadvantage, a psychological disadvantage.
1: I definitely, definitely see that. Certain type of demands that you know white society makes, is trained to make, certain expectations they have that we have not been encouraged to have. So um, I can see that. So what if, you know, black communities across the board built more black schools and divested from the public education system? What does the world look
2: like then? You know, right now, I think about ninety percent of all black children go to public schools. So, to create an alternative system that can accommodate uh, the tens of millions of students, uh, I'm not sure. Um, there, there's also you know homeschool movements, and I, I think you know both the um, the the private Afrocentric schools and the the homeschools. Um, I think that they can do. Very good things for individual students. On a systemic level, though, it's very complicated for me to, to see that as a reality. And we also pay tax dollars. You know, Black people pay for these public schools, um, whether we use them or not. Uh, so you know, we can, the ones of us can, that can afford it, can pay for this alternative education, but we're still paying for public schools. And white students are also going to these public schools. Um, I think what we need is a public system of education that works for us. So I would be more inclined to put my energy into trying to fight for good public schools for uh, Black children. Uh, and you know, there there are plenty of Black children. You know, I, I went to public schools. Um, and you know, my public school wasn't Afrocentric by any stretch of the imagination. But my mother and my my parents uh, gave me the type of education at home that I was the one going to my teachers, telling them what they should be teaching. Uh, and so that's a you know that's a that's an alternative path. And and um, so my my mother didn't have to break the bank uh, to send me to a different school. She was able to give me the resources I needed at home uh, and, and also put me in a position where I could talk to my public school peers and, you know, write for my newspaper and, and, um, you know, tell them some of the things that I learned at home. So I think all of those things are, are important. I I think it's going to take a multi-pronged, multi-pronged approach.
1: That's a good point. You know, everybody's not able, unfortunately, and everybody doesn't want to, which is also fun in terms of, you know, the options that are available now or, In the future. I think the key there is that that multi-pronged approach, right? We can't expect the school to handle all of it, right? As a community, um, as a people, we have to figure out other ways to affirm ourselves, to affirm those next generations so they are prepared to go out into the world as we're still working to shape the world into what we want it to be. I'd like to get some insight now on why HBCUs were initially established and you know, what role they're serving today as it relates to, you know, preparing Black kids to go into the world and, and address these challenges
2: that we face. Yeah, uh, so HBCU, that's a historic designation. In order to to get that designation, uh, you have to have been founded before the Civil Rights Act of 1965 uh, and be established as a response to um, racial segregation. Uh, and so there's a hundred HBCUs that exist right now. About 13 of them are research institutions. Um, and the others are predominantly undergraduate uh, schools. Uh, and there's about 10 HBCUs that are uh, community colleges. Uh, so there's a, a wide variety of them and, and they continue to serve a role today by giving black students the opportunity to be educated in an environment that affirms who they are. Most HBCUs have uh, Black culture embedded in their mission. And so there's plenty of non-Black people at HBCUs, but everyone at an HBCU is there to learn about, learn the value of Blackness and Black people in the United States. Um, but they are accredited by, you know, the same accrediting agencies that uh, accredit all other institutions. And so uh, that's good that you get uh, accredited education, but it, it, um, sometimes it doesn't serve HBCUs well because sometimes accreditation standards uh, doesn't necessarily coincide with the uh, the best thing for black people. A specific example of that is using standardized tests for admissions. You have to do that to, uh, um, Are, are there's some value to doing that. Uh, to get accredited, but these standardized tests are, are um, culturally biased. But you know, other than that, you know, HBCUs are definitely a value add. Um, I remember one person, uh, they they responding to someone saying that uh, they didn't want to go to an HBCU because they wanted a university that would prepare them for real life and being around predominantly black people as in real life. And that person's response was, you have your entire life to be a minority. This is your one chance to not be a minority. And then another response to that was, you know, predominantly white institutions don't represent real life either. You know, because demographics at UCLA and USC, that is certainly not the demographics of, life, you know? So in many ways, HBCUs would prepare you for life rather than uh, a lot of these so-called elite, predominantly white institutions.
1: I've heard that before. What do you think that, that sort of that saying, that belief comes from, that it doesn't prepare you for real life based on the demographics of HBCU?
2: It's uh, the normalization of whiteness. It's our tendency to make white the standard, um, even though demographically that's not that's not the truth. Uh, you know, when you look at the demographics of California, um, white people aren't the majority. So going to a predominantly white institution in the state of California doesn't prepare you for what California really is. <clears throat> but because we have these other systems, you know, whether it's the uh, entertainment industry or the, the, the tech industry, um, uh, these corporations, uh, they take on those same norms of whiteness. Uh, so, what we're what we're saying when we say that predominantly white institutions prepare you for life better, uh, they really prepare you for white supremacy better. If you want to work within those, if you want to be have a competitive edge within the structures uh, that are excluding a lot of us,
1: you know that makes me think of something that. Dr. Amos Wilson. So, are you familiar with Dr. Wilson's mm-hmm. work? Yeah. Okay. So, he talks about how the purpose of education is to learn to solve the challenges that a group of people or a community faces. From what you've seen, do you think we're even viewing education in a way that will, you know, get us the results we want as a people? I know I was encouraged, you know, go to school, get a good job, mm-hmm. do, you know, X, Y, Z career. We think we have a certain framework for looking at it. I think across the board, we value it mm-hmm. from my experience, but I don't know if we are viewing it in the, in the correct framework to actually advance our community's interests. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you know, education doesn't give us uh, a lot of real life, real world skills as it's constructed right now. And that's something that we really need to think about. Um, the model of education is very archaic. Um, you know, I mean, we we take summers off uh, because of the harvest. You know, um, uh, that's because education was started uh, during the agricultural era um, before the industrial revolution. Uh, so you took that time off because that's when you were growing your, your crops. Uh, and just like we still have that as an aspect of education uh, a lot of our a lot of what we do in education is really more for a time that's passed um, you know we are well beyond post industrial revolution um, you know we're in this tech era we're in this innovation season we're in the information age and so we need to think differently about what education is and how we structure education in a way that really gives black children the competitive edge in life.
1: Just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history you matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at BlackHistoryYear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but every little bit makes a difference. appreciate you supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Abani Jones, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Akwiyate, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace producing the podcast, we have Sidney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. In Black Kiss History Years, executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.